Welcome. Welcome back. Welcome home. This is Tracy, and we want to thank you for being a part of the Life Together podcast. Before we get into this week's teaching, we want you to know that you matter to God and you matter to us. Life Together is a Wednesday evening gathering for worship, Bible study, and community here at Oak Creek Assembly of God in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. I want to open tonight by sharing with you the story of my worst Christmas ever. Why was it my worst Christmas ever? Well, I'm about to tell you. So I was nine years old. I was living in Mesa, Arizona. I am number two out of four children in my my family. And we grew up in what I would describe as very modest Christmases. So uh, we had a small house, our house about 1,300 square feet, two boys in one room, two girls in the other room. And we knew every year that mom and dad had a $20 Christmas budget. So if you had less than that, then tell me later. If you had more than that, don't tell me. And we knew. We knew it was going to be $20. I was actually, I was in a JCPenney's this weekend buying shoes for my, one of my kids. And I'm in the line checking out, and there was this kind of grandma, uh, granddaughter hanging out. And they were staring at this case that had this drone camera helicopter thing that was <laughs> like I needed to explain a drone to you. So they're hanging out here talking. I think the price tag was $25. And Grandma says, well, if you choose to get this for Christmas, that's going to be it. And I was like, well, look at Grandma, $25. That's like a fair budget. And she says, and so I, I listen along, and she goes, no, honey, that's it. It's going to be the Xbox, the Barbie doll house, and this, and that's it. Ah, uh, Grandma. <laughs> Grandma's pushing up into that $500 Christmas present range. Grandma needs to say no. So when you just have $20, you have to kind of spend carefully. I feel like when I tell this story, I sound like an 80-year-old. We used to look through the Montgomery Ward catalog, which, again, I'm I'm 39. It sounds like the sentence of an 80-year-old. But Montgomery Ward was like the last department store that still had a catalog. Not like, here's the sales, but like a full listing of every item that they sold. And so we would sit there and flip through this, and the months come up to Christmas to make sure we could pick out the best 1999 option that was in the book to stay under budget and to get what we want. And so I had picked out this, uh, it was some kind of Hot Wheels thing, and it had some kind of air pump squishy thing. So when you'd hit it, It'd go like, pew, and the car would fly, and it looked really cool on the commercials. So I get this toy Christmas morning. It did not go well. So I'm opening it up, and as I'm opening up, set up, I'm so excited. Months of anticipation, and the first time, I, and nothing happens. And I did it three, four, five, six times. Apparently, there must have been some hole or something in the product. Nothing happens. I remember the feeling as I'm sitting in the hallway crying. This is the worst Christmas ever! I've grown. And as I look back, I feel like my 39-year-old self can give my 9-year-old self a little bit of grace. I feel like maybe you would consider giving my 9-year-old self that same amount of grace because... Living with an underdeveloped perspective is part of childhood. It's part of growing up. 
You aren't born with a great perspective. You're born with an underdeveloped perspective. So if an infant is seeing mom and sees mom leave out of the infant's perspective, they instantly believe that mom is just gone, like mom doesn't exist. The only things that can exist are the things that they can perceive. So unless they can see mom or feel mom or smell mom, then for the infant's mind, mom just died. She's, she's gone. She does not exist anymore. It's all over. And as we grow, we have to develop that. Spiritual maturity is placing your daily actions and reactions in the perspective of the everlasting. This isn't something that we are born with. It is something that we grow into as we develop better perspective. I want to challenge you tonight that we would celebrate Christmas in the perspective of the everlasting. Will you turn in your Bibles tonight or scroll to the book of Isaiah? So I'm going to go to the book of Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to warn you that I'm going to do some hopping around tonight, but my main spot I'm going to hang out in is Isaiah chapter 9. And we'll start by reading verses 1 and 2. So Isaiah 9 verse 1 and 2 says this, Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. Can we pray as we get started tonight? Father, we thank you for your word that you have allowed us to be in community together. We thank you, Lord, that you've allowed us to celebrate your word tonight, to worship, and to be supported by fellow believers. I pray that as we spend time in your word, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, give us guidance, give us your mindset, that we might know you better. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So the book of Isaiah is this mammoth book in the Old Testament. So it has 66 chapters, which means it is the second most chapters of any book in the Bible. Isaiah is quoted a lot at Christmas time because the prophet Isaiah prophesied many things about the Messiah. There are many things that the people knew about the Messiah many years before the Messiah came because of Isaiah. So Isaiah lived 800 years before Jesus was born. But I want to make a quick little book list here of some of the things that we know that Isaiah told us about the Messiah 800 years before the Messiah was born. So in Isaiah 7, we learn that the Messiah will be born to a virgin. So when Mary says that she's not, never been with a man and yet she's having a baby, if you knew Isaiah... This would make sense to you because he said it was going to happen before it happened. In Isaiah chapter 8, he tells us that the Messiah will be a stumbling block for religious leaders. So when in Jesus' life we see him in all of these fights with religious leaders, they are not supporting him, they are actively against him. If you had read the book of Isaiah, this would make sense to you because Isaiah said it was going to happen before it happened. In Isaiah 11, Isaiah tells us that the Messiah will restore all nations. So when Jesus starts preaching to people who are not Jewish people, this makes sense. He's not just going to be the God of one people group. He's going to be the God of the world, of all nations, every tribe, every tongue. In Isaiah chapter 35, Isaiah tells us the Messiah will perform many miracles. So when you are living in Jesus' lifetime and you see him healing the sick and the lame are walking and the deaf are hearing and the blind are seeing, if you had read Isaiah, you would say, this guy could be the Messiah. 
because Isaiah said it would be this way 800 years before it happened. In Isaiah 40, we learn that the Messiah will be introduced to us by a voice in the wilderness. So when there's a guy named John the Baptist out in the wilderness screaming, prepare the way of the Lord, if you had read Isaiah, you wouldn't be surprised. In Isaiah chapter 53, he tells us that the Messiah will carry our punishment and his suffering will bring us healing. So as the soldiers are tearing into Jesus' back, as they are flogging him with each stripe, if you had read the book of Isaiah, you might be sitting on the sidelines going, that's my healing. As Jesus is suffering, that's going to be my healing. He is taking on my pain so that I can be made whole. Isaiah says all of these things 800 years before Jesus is born. Now, if you've been a friend of ours in life together for more than a year, you might have noticed we've been doing kind of a trend with our December sermon series. So last year, we preached a series in life together that was called Wonderful Counselor. We talked about how Jesus is our wonderful counselor. Two years ago, we preached a series called Prince of Peace, and we talked about how Jesus is our Prince of Peace. Well, both of those titles come from Isaiah chapter 9, the chapter that we started in today. And I want to read the key verse right now as we continue. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Isaiah prophesies this. He says, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called. Can you read these four names with me out loud? Let's say them together. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Can we say these four names of Christ one more time? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So these four titles are here, and I need to confess to you that I've been dodging one of them for two years now. So there's one in this list that does not fit as easily as the others do, and I have been a little shy to go after it, but this is the year to do it, and I want to spend this year talking about how Jesus is our everlasting Father. There's two words there, everlasting and Father, and I find both words to be challenging. I find them challenging, and I think even when you put the two of them together, it becomes more challenging to answer the question, how is Jesus our everlasting father. With these words, there are three questions I want to ask, and we're going to take these next three weeks to seek after the mystery of these three questions. And the first one is, how is Jesus everlasting? So if we celebrate at Christmas the birth of Jesus Christ, are we not celebrating the start of Jesus? You know, Hebrews 13, 8 tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But how how many yesterdays are we talking about? How, how far back does yesterday go? If Jesus was born like you and I were born, then didn't Jesus start when he was born? How is Jesus everlasting? The second question this wants us to ask is, how is Jesus our father? So, the title Son of God is in the New Testament 42 times. The title Son of Man is in the New Testament 85 times. So these are very familiar titles. If you read the New Testament, you are going to hear Jesus called the Son of Man. You are going to hear him called the Son of God. He is called the Everlasting Father one time in the Bible, and it's right here in Isaiah 9-6. How is Jesus our 
Father. And then my third question is to put them together. How is Jesus our everlasting Father? How does he carry these qualities from eternity to eternity, from the never beginning to the never ending? So we're going to take three weeks to answer these questions, but we're going to kick off this week, week one, with just the first question. How is Jesus everlasting? So throughout the Gospels, Jesus has a lot of these knockdown, drag-out fights with the religious leaders, where it is a word battle, but it's more than that, because in these conversations, in these arguments, it is these arguments that will eventually lead to Jesus' death. And one of these fights is found in John chapter 8, and Jesus is speaking, and these religious leaders are furious at him. And the reason that this time they're furious with him is because he keeps telling people that if they follow his teaching, they will not die. And they're very angry about this. So the, so the Pharisees are coming up to Jesus, and they're saying, hey man, you know, you keep saying that the people who follow your teaching will never die, but that's crazy, and here's why it's crazy. The most holy man that we know is Abraham. Abraham is the most holy man we know. He's the most righteous man we know. And we also know that Abraham is dead. And so if Abraham is dead, who do you think you are telling us that the people who follow your teaching are never going to die? So Jesus pushes back and he says, well, if you want to bring Abraham into the conversation, let's do it. Um, Abraham knew me. Abraham looked forward to the day that I showed up. Well, at this point, the religious leaders, their minds are melting down because they are enraged that this man would say that the most righteous man they know is looking forward to him, that he knew the most righteous man they ever know who lived hundreds and hundreds of years before this time. So the Pharisees, they clap back and they say, hey, you can't even be 50 years old. How dare you say that you knew Abraham? Jesus' response is in John chapter 8, verse 58, and Jesus answers. He says, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was even born, I am. It's not I was. There is no past tense for the everlasting. Jesus says, I am. Jesus looks like a 30-year-old man. His heart has only been beating for 30 years. His lungs have only been breathing for 30 years. But was that when Jesus began? Is Christmas when Jesus began? It's important that we choose our words carefully when we talk about the mystery of the everlasting Christ. You know, Jesus, the, the name Jesus, isn't anywhere in the Old Testament, and it's not there because... Uh, Jesus had not been born. This is why when the angel appears to Joseph in a dream and instructs him to name the baby Jesus, this is new information. It was new information to Joseph. He had not heard that name before. No one had heard that the baby, the Christ, would be named Jesus. But when we say Jesus Christ, I want to remind you that Christ is not Jesus' last name. So I am not Dan worship leader. I am Dan the worship leader and that Christ is his title, it is his role that he is filling. And it, it's interesting, it actually works the same way if you talk about the enemy of our souls. So we would say that the enemy of our souls is the Satan. He is Jesus, the Christ. It is his title. And when we talk about the role of Christ, the person of Christ, the person of Christ is 
all through the Old Testament. The person of Christ is from the beginning of time to the end of time. We don't have time to search for Christ in all 66 books of the Bible tonight, but I think it's a good goal for us to understand how Jesus is everlasting. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go look at the very, very beginning. Because if Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, if he stretches from the never beginning to the never ending, then certainly Christ was there at the beginning. I want to look for three ways that we find Christ in the creation story. So the first way we find Christ in the creation story is that Christ is promised in creation. So Adam and Eve sin by rejecting God's authority. Because of their sin, they are separated from God. God then speaks to Adam, to Eve, and to the serpent, to the Satan. And in Genesis 3.15, God is speaking to the Satan when he says, And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring of Eve, the chosen one, the Christ, will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Christ is promised in creation. And this promise repeats itself dozens of times through the Old Testament that Christ is coming. I promise you. The Messiah is coming. Redemption is coming. The second way that we find Christ in creation looks like this. Christ is patterned in creation. So Christ is promised in creation. Christ is patterned in creation. The nature of Christ, the nature of redemption is exemplified and symbolized in the creation story. In that one moment where Adam and Eve reject the authority of God, everything changes. They take one bite of what they think will be fulfilling and life-giving, and what do they immediately feel? They feel shame. Have you ever had that dream where you realize that you're at work and you've forgotten your clothes? right? And like, but somehow in your dream, you must have eaten breakfast and like driven to work and never noticed until you're actually at work. And then you notice that you've forgotten your clothes. Well, this is what Adam and Eve are experiencing, that they are living their life free from shame. And after one sinful act, they suddenly feel shame and they're aware that they're naked and they run from their nakedness. The Bible tells us that they sewed together fig leaves, which sounds very challenging, in order to make clothing. So, so God comes into the story. He sees them. He uh, expresses the consequences for their sin. But as he sends them out from paradise, God pauses and he does one more thing for them. And the Bible tells us in verse 21, he says, And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. God covers their shame you know, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve only ate fruits and vegetables and beans. So there was no animals that were murdered, that died in the Garden of Eden. It was a perfect place. It was a place without bloodshed. As Adam and Eve are leaving, as consequences of their own actions, of their own sin, our Heavenly Father's compassion decides to do something for them, to clothe them, to cover their shame. And so the first animal that ever dies is an animal that dies at the hands of their own creator as God slays one of his creation in order to provide a covering for the shame, for the sin of Adam and Eve. This is a pattern 
of Christ. Galatians 3.27 says, And all who have been unified with Christ in baptism have— So anyone in the room who's been baptized, it's talking to you. And all of you who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. Adam and Eve are clothed in Christ. This is the pattern of Christ through the Old Testament. We see Christ patterned through Noah, and we see it patterned through Abraham and through Moses and through David. Christ is the pattern of the Old Testament because Christ is everlasting. He has always been, and he will always be. The third way that we see Christ in the creation story is that Christ is present in creation. Not just promised, not just patterned, but we see that Christ is present. After Adam and Eve sinned, the Bible says in verse 8 of chapter 3, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Who's walking about in the garden? You know, at this point, Adam and Eve have sinned. Does, does God the Father walk around and appear to sinners? You know, God is holy. This is the same God who was behind the veil for many, many years and could only be approached by one who had already been purified. Does God walk around and appear to sinners? Sin separates us from God, and yet someone is walking through the garden speaking to Adam and Eve. Most people who study the Bible believe that when God appears throughout the Old Testament, it shouldn't be understood as God the Father, but it should be seen as God the Son, the chosen one of God, the Christ. Jesus is not appearing in a physical body because he does not yet have a physical body. That's what we celebrate in the incarnation of Christ with Jesus. But throughout the Old Testament, Christ is still the mediator. He is the one who goes between God and man. He is the one who introduces the world to our Heavenly Father. The famous theologian Jonathan Edwards said it like this, When we read in sacred history what God did from time to time towards his church and people and how he revealed himself to them, we are to understand it especially of the second person of the Trinity, not the Father, but the Son. John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. Christ is the everlasting revelation of God to us. Christ was present on the day that Abraham attempted to sacrifice his son. Christ was present on the night that Jacob wrestled with God. Christ was present at the burning bush. Jesus Christ knows no beginning. He is everlasting. I have a friend um, who in the last three weeks has separated from his wife, and it is Extremely challenging. If anyone in this room has experienced this before, you understand the pains that come with separation, the pains that come with divorce. And so he has two kids, and they are sitting here looking at the next four weeks of how to walk through Christmas for the first time in 16 years without his spouse. How to wade through the unexpected waters of what comes next. Me and Mandy have another friend who um, 
is our age. She's a mother of four. And in the last few weeks, after a two-year battle with cancer, she's been given about three to six months to live. And, uh, and she's still, you know, picking out what she's going to buy for her kids for Christmas this year, going through the motions with a very unexpected future ahead. What does it mean to live in the perspective of the everlasting? To not sit there with a infant's perspective, a child's perspective of the here and now, but to live with a spiritually mature perspective of the everlasting. How do we not lose sight of the one who was, who is, and who will always be? You know, we're investing a lot of time and energy into our Christmas musical. It's a lot of my workload. There's lots of details. We try really hard. We put our best effort forth. We started rehearsals many months ago. We really, I think one of the best things we can accomplish is to inspire someone's imagination to the full nature of God, to inspire them to the wonder of the incarnation, of how God would love us so much that he would send his only son to take on human form so that we might be revealed to him. There is beauty in inspiring someone's imagination, but as the director, I have to confess to you what I know to be true. Even in our best efforts of what we can accomplish in music and action and drama and video and and lights and storytelling and the best speakers and the best singers, our best effort is like holding up a candle to the sun. Christ is so much greater. He is so much more unfathomable. He cannot be contained. He cannot be explained. He cannot be pinned down into a time period. He cannot be pinned down into a cultural celebration, into one people group or one moment or one millennium. He is everlasting. And when I stand at like the doorway of December and I begin to walk into these familiar stories and I'm doing things like planning holiday parties and putting up decorations around the house and doing final rehearsals for the Christmas musical, I need to stop and I need to allow myself just one moment to wade into the awe of the everlasting Christ of the one who was here from the never beginning to the never ending. And what does that make me want to do? You know, it it makes me want to do what the people did on the very first Christmas. It makes me like the wise men want to just throw everything I own at his feet. That that everything that I have, if I I see who he is, then everything that I have, I just, I want to like, wringing out of my pockets and just throw them before him. I want to throw, and I want to give him the good stuff and I want to give him the bad stuff. So I want to give him every great thing that I have to offer, all of my great relationships, uh, the money, provision, uh, talents, skills, everything that is good and lovely in this world that I have or that I've ever known, I just want to give it to him. And every stress that I'm carrying, every anxiety, all the shortcomings that I count in my head before I fall asleep, I just want to take all of those and just throw it at his feet and say, you're worthy. You're worthy. You are the everlasting Christ. I want to do what the shepherds did. And the moment that I become aware of his existence, I want to run and find him. That when I start my day and I have this glimpse of awareness that Christ is 
that he was, he is, and he always will be, that I, I just, I, I want to leave what I'm doing so that I would spend my life pursuing him, to be with him. I want to be with the one who flung the stars into the sky. I want to be with the one who knows every hair that I have on my head. I want to be with the one who would love me with such affection to cast this crazy escapade for my soul. I want to, I want to be with him. I think as we go through the next four weeks, I think every one of us is going to get the chance to make that choice of, am I going to choose to live this moment with a child's perspective? Or am I going to walk through this moment in a perspective of the everlasting to see God and to stand in the awesome awareness of who he is? Abraham knew him. Abraham was excited to see him come. And before Abraham was born, he was. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I love you. I am in awe of who you are. And I pray, Lord, that tonight that that awe would just be planted in each one of us. I pray, Lord, that you would help our perspective to expand. When we get stuck in the temporary, when we get stuck in the here and now, I pray that you would remind us, allow your Holy Spirit to remind us of the God who was and who is and who always will be. I pray, Lord, that as we spend time in this series this month, I pray, Lord, that you would allow your presence to just rest here. I pray that there would be a sweet expression of praise as we spend time with who you are and we spend time meditating upon your word. I want to pray for every person in this room tonight. There may be people who have walked in this room and felt very unseen as they walked in. There may be people who walked in this room feeling very stressed, maybe depressed, maybe strained, maybe discouraged. And I pray, Lord, that tonight, as we take a moment to stare at the things that weigh upon our hearts, the things that might be weighing down on our shoulders or our backs tonight, I pray that you would help us to lay them down at your feet. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us. Be the one who, who, who shows us the way to our Heavenly Father. Be the eternal revelation of God. We need you. We call upon your name. And I pray, Lord, that you would meet us in this place. And I pray that you would call us closer to your side. We love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us for the Life Together podcast. It's even better when we get to see you in person. You are invited to join us on Wednesday evenings here at Oak Creek Assembly of God. We are a church that exists to reach our world for Christ as we lead people to discover and become who God has created them to be. Find us online at oakcreekag.org.